The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Trump was trying to bring them closer to the crowd and be more fired up and march more directly as part of that crowd, which all increased the risk of violence, whether or not he intended to. And I'll, I'll agree with Alan here. I think there is, uh, it is evidence of intent as well, that if, if this is the awareness that you have, it changes the context. It makes the speech even more imminent. Like once you know that this is the language you're using in a crowd of heavily armed people that you have made concretely more armed including the people who would who would bring heavy arms that changes the 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 calculus to be more imminent and more intent as incitement i'm natalie orpet executive editor of lawfare and this is the lawfare podcast october 28th 2022 there's been a lot of discussion about whether donald trump should be indicted Lately, that discussion has focused on the documents the FBI seized from Mar-a-Lago, or the January 6th committee's revelations about his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. But what about his speech on the Ellipse on January 6th, when he told a crowd of thousands to fight like hell, and they went on to attack the Capitol? Isn't that incitement? I sat down with Alan Rosenstein, a senior editor at Lawfare and an associate professor at the University of Minnesota Law School, and Jed Sugarman, a professor at Fordham Law School. Alan and Jed explained the complicated First Amendment jurisprudence protecting political speech, even when it leads to violence, and why they believe that given everything we know now, Trump may in fact be criminally liable. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 28th, 2022. Why the First Amendment doesn't protect Trump's January 6th speech. So, Alan and Jed... On January 6th, then-President Trump stood in front of thousands and thousands of people and gave a 75-minute-long speech during which he said things like, we need to fight like hell. If you don't fight like hell, you're you're not going to have a country anymore, during which he exhorted the crowd to go down to the Capitol, march down to the Capitol. And following that, as we all well know, the crowd, in fact, did march down to the Capitol and invaded it and was in the Capitol disrupting the proceedings of Congress during a crucial moment in our democratic process. For hours and hours, people died. There was millions of dollars of damage. Why has he not been indicted for some sort of crime in connection with that speech? Alan, I'll turn to you. Sure. So I, I think 
I mean, there there are many many reasons, uh, you know, ranging from all the other January six cases DOJ is dealing with to just the sensitivities as a general matter of uh, indicting a former president and the de facto leader of the opposition party. But the main legal issue is that there's, I think, a really strong case that if you just look at the content of his speech, that it is, if not definitely, then certainly arguably protected under the First Amendment. And if you're going to bring a prosecution against Donald Trump, you don't want to bring a prosecution on marginal legal grounds. And the reason that it's protected is that the First Amendment, and this is something that I think actually a lot of Americans don't fully appreciate, the First Amendment provides really expansive protections for all sorts of objectionable speech, lies, hate speech, a lot of stuff that people don't realize is protected by the First Amendment is protected. And one of the categories that's protected is political speech that tends in the direction of encouraging lawlessness or even violence. Uh, And this protection comes from one of the most famous First Amendment cases of the 20th century, the 1969 case of Brandenburg versus Ohio, in which the court set out what has become the sort of core doctrine around when it is permissible to criminalize political speech. And in that case, the court said that the only time you can criminalize speech, you know, on the grounds that it has incited lawlessness or violence is where the speech one clearly shows the speaker's intent to cause that lawlessness or violence. And two, the content of the speech is likely to cause imminent, immediate, directed lawlessness or violence. And so that sets a very high threshold for when the government can go after you for saying stuff that causes a crowd to go commit some crimes. There are some other cases that the Supreme Court decided after Brandenburg that we can talk about that elaborate on this. But that really has been the main kind of doctrinal lodestar in this area. And so my view, and and I think also Jed's view, um, and we can talk about how our views kind of evolved, because I think that's also interesting. Uh, My view, you know, right after the speech, reading the transcript was that it was a bad speech, right? It was an immoral speech. Um, It was a speech full of lies. It was a speech that I think you could legitimately impeach Trump for. But it was not a speech that explicitly and unambiguously directed the crowd to attack the Capitol. And that there was enough in that speech, not just the ambiguity of what fight like hell means, but also some other stuff that Trump said that cuts against the inciting nature of the speech. You know, words like you're going to march peacefully, you know, to the Capitol, Uh, that in, in my mind, made it both very unlikely that DOJ would, on the content of the speech, prosecute Trump criminally, and also that it would not be appropriate for DOJ to, to do that. Now, lots of things have changed in the meantime, and that's why Jed and I you know, wrote this piece for Lawfare that we did a few months ago, and we wrote this Law Review article uh, that, we, that we just uh, released that have changed our minds. But Ellen... Before we get to why we changed our minds, I think there's still two things I'd want to flag uh, from Natalie's question about the reluctance, the, the, the rightful reluctance. And so one aspect is what, just to pick up on what you're saying, Alan, is that this would be a, a precedent that would open up many other prosecutions that would be far more political, partisan, and uh, unjustified. So there are lots of political leaders who say things at rallies like fight like hell. 
as metaphors. And that if this was a prosecution for that basis, uh, it would be very hard to distinguish any other case where there was a, at a rally, someone said, fight like hell or go march somewhere, and then violence ensued and how to distinguish that case from the Trump case, it would, just, it would open up those prosecutions. And, and one thing that Natalie indicated, you know, w- w- Natalie, when you said, well, he said, fight like hell and march on the Capitol, and that's what happened. One concern that Alan and I share is the kind of hindsight bias that I think one reason why so many people are motivated or see the Trump speech as potentially as, as criminalizable is working backward from the result. And Alan and I are concerned about that ex post thinking that just because other people respond to a speech with violence, that doesn't make that speech incitement or insurrection. There is a difference between what one intends to imply versus what a crowd infers. There's lots of speech that lead that can be connected to uh, the result of violence. And once we go down the road to saying that causation, that any speech that causes violence directly or indirectly is potentially criminalizable, then we have to look at a lot of speech as now no longer protected by the First Amendment. And that's not a road we want, that Alan and I wanted to go down. Yeah. And I think on the, on the flip side, but in the same vein, intent to incite violence, for example, as demonstrated through speech if it fails to actually incite violence, should still be criminalizable, no? That's that's what Alan and I were puzzled about with the content of the speech and why the new information from the January 6th committee changes it. So just to be clear, if, if the speech is ambiguous about both its intent and its imminence, then that's not the basis for an incitement prosecution. The, the, if the content is ambiguous... Uh, then the intent is unclear and it's harder to make a case of imminence from, you know, heated rhetoric. There has to be a space under the First Amendment for people to use and to use strong language and to use rhetoric, to use metaphors like fight like hell and not to be prosecuted for those metaphors if they are indeed metaphors and not intent to incite a riot. Okay, so let's dig in a little bit more on those two main components of the Brandenburg test and talk about them in the context of this speech. So the other important piece of this, of course, is we've talked about the fact that the First Amendment is protective of speech and particularly political speech, and one uses the Brandenburg test to determine the contours of that. But of course, the other side of it is that there are crimes that are potential to be prosecuted. So what are the crimes that could potentially be at play with respect to Trump's speech at the ellipse? So so we think that the potential crimes, you're just looking in the federal code, that Trump could potentially be liable for fall into sort of three buckets. Um, So the first bucket is your garden variety, such as it is, incitement to riot. So this is the anti-riot statute. It punishes people who travel or use interstate commerce to uh, you know, encourage or aid a riot and, and you know, do some act in furtherance of that. That act can, in principle, be speech. It can be other things. Um, so that's one, one possibility. Another set of potential crimes uh, is uh, fraud and obstruction of justice. So you know, th- this, the crime here is you, you did something to interfere with you know, governmental um, functions. And then the third, and 
probably the most serious, uh, and I think in some sense the most appropriate, given the severity of the conduct here, is uh, insurrection and seditious conspiracy, which are separate statutes, but they're but they're related, and they were both passed, you know, at the similar time during and, and shortly after the Civil War. And here, those crimes are about using force to, you know, basically fight the government in some in some way. Insurrection is something you do on your own. Seditious conspiracy is a conspiracy, so it involves planning with other people. Uh, so there's some differences there. But those are the sort of the three main buckets of potential liability. And then the question is, to what extent can Trump's actions on January 6th, and in particular his speech, but also other things he did, to what extent can they, to what to what extent can the government lawfully and constitutionally use that to prosecute Trump given these background First Amendment protections he has? And, and just to jump on onto that citations of those statutes, I think you know one thing to preview some of our analysis is that some of those statutes explicitly require overt acts. So the incitement to riot language is that with in- intent to incite riot or organize, promote, or encourage a riot, uh, one performs or attempts to perform any other overt act to incite, organize, etc. So there's an additional requirement. Of an, of an overt act. Is it additional? Can the speech itself be overt? Either way, overt acts are required for, for incitement to riot. And, um, and, and there are other places, but I just want to, I want to flag that aspect of the incitement statute. Yeah, that's really helpful. And let's actually take each of those in turn and sort of apply the analysis of under the First Amendment to each of those crimes. So starting with incitement to riot, and uh, Jed, if we can stay with you, how did you look at the facts of Trump's speech initially? And then how did the emergence of new facts that have come out in the time since affect the analysis as to whether Trump's speech and related content relating to the January 6th speech should be protected under the First Amendment? Yeah, I mean, it's just to start with incitement itself. You know, I just I think this is where Alan started was this the both the the statute itself and the Brandenburg test as a requirement for both intent and imminence under Brandenburg. It is hard to look at the content of Trump's speech and distinguish it from lots of other speeches, as I was suggesting before. And so the language of fight like hell and go march on the Capitol was, first of all, mitigated by other language that Alan identified, like march peacefully. And it's it's difficult to look at that speech itself and identify anything explicit. So one example of, of speech that has been regarded as incitement with imminence is giving very concrete directions about how to build bombs, right? Or, or very concrete admonitions to do something immediately, explicitly with violence. And so that is the background of the, the case law, the precedents that it narrow rightfully narrow incitement prosecutions for when for, for really explicit and explicit language being the evidence for intent. So that was one reason why incitement was difficult. We are not as focused. I think there's a pretty good argument that what happened on January 6th was obstruction of justice because an official proceeding county electoral votes is, is an obstruction. But it's still, I think there is the st- same problem of finding a corrupt intent. And so the speech 
And the overlapping problem here is being able to establish intent from the speech itself when that speech is ambiguous in both the context of fight like hell and the additional kinds of uh, phrasing of, of do this peacefully. And then finally, you know, insurrection is, is, is sort of a second order or second level kind of crime. It's, it's almost like if you can't establish incitement, then if that speech isn't incitement, it would be very, it would be even harder to establish that it was insurrection. So really, I think the starting point is that mix of questions of incitement, intent, and imminence that all go together before you can build the other statutes on them. Yeah. And j- just to build on what, what Jed just said, you know, I think another way of thinking about this problem is, is that the First Amendment and the law in general tend to draw or at least try to draw pretty sharp lines between speech on the one hand, which is generally pretty protected, and conduct on the other hand, which is not right. particularly protected. And there are many situations in which the law looks at speech and says, sure, this is speech, you know, it's words that came out of someone's mouth, but really you should think of it as conduct. So, you know, a standard example is conspiracy, actually, right? You know, if you, uh, you know, if a mob boss tells his underling to go and kill someone, sure, that's speech. But the role of that speech is is primarily to accomplish some specific action, which is to say the killing. And because that is criminal, the First Amendment doesn't actually really apply in those situations. And the way the courts deal with that is they say, well, really here, the, the speech was, was integral to the crime itself, right? It's not speech in the way the First Amendment cares about speech. And so the problem, of course, is there's no clear distinguishing line between speech on the one hand and conduct on the other. There are all these corner cases and, and you know, blurry boundary drawing. Uh, and so one way of looking at cases like Brandenburg and the First Amendment's general protections for speech, and then as they're applied, for example, in criminal statutes, as Jed just explained, is to say that where the speech is kind of public and about political or kind of general, the, the sorts of things the First Amendment cares about, the threshold for saying this speech really should be thought of as conduct to accomplish a specific criminal objective, that threshold is really high, right? It's not infinitely high. Um, you know, people can absolutely be sent, be properly prosecuted for incitement just based on their speech. But in those situations, you know, as Jed explained, the speech tends to have to be very, very explicit. And where you lack that explicitness, the First Amendment you know, out of an abundance of caution, right? And we can argue whether that's good or or bad. I think Jed and I both think that's generally good, but just it is d- descriptively just a, a true statement about the law that the First Amendment tends to err on the side of saying, eh, we're going to count that as speech, not as conduct. And therefore, we're going to provide a lot of protection for it. Yeah. And I'm glad Alan mentioned conspiracy statutes because you'll see there's a thread here. Many federal conspiracy statutes, and in fact, the ones that p- most people refer to, have a requirement that it's not just talk, that people aren't just talking about a crime. There has to be, again, that same language of, quote, an overt act towards the crime itself. So again and again, there, our legal system, and as a mix of, 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 of statutes, incitement, conspiracy, and as we'll talk about later, Natalie, the founding itself in the treason clause require more than speech to be convicted of speech-related crimes of incitement, treason, insurrection. They require an overt act. Uh, and, And so that is an additional way to protect against the criminalization of loose talk or metaphorical talk. 
Okay, so let's uh, let's apply this to the speech itself because, as you said, Alan, when you first read the transcript of the speech itself, you concluded that the speech, the language that um, Trump used, was sufficiently ambiguous that it it did not meet this very high thresholds of sufficiently concrete and sort of instruction like to constitute in and of itself incitement, but the facts surrounding the speech and the conduct that Trump engaged in changed your mind. What else happened that changes or did change the analysis as we learned more facts around the speech? Yeah. I, I mean, I, we, we've learned a lot. Um, you know, we've learned a lot about the actual dangerousness of the crowd. You know, we've learned about Trump's mental state throughout. You know, we, we've learned that Trump knew or at least should have known that he had in fact lost the election. Um, but I think most damning and most relevant for the argument that Jen and I are making, we learned that Trump just didn't just talk. He actually tried to do things that had they been successful would have, well, a riot happened either way, but would have made it more likely and maybe even more dangerous uh, than, than what actually happened. And in particular, there are two things the January 6th committee has, has I think, demonstrated. And, and also, I should say before I get into those things, you know, there's a big difference between, and it should be emphasized, there's a big difference between a congressional committee that puts on the testimony it wants, there's no cross-examination, there, there's no judge, there's no evidentiary issues, and the burdens of proof that the government would have to meet in a criminal trial, right? Where you're going to have some of the best lawyers in the country defending the president, you're going to have beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And so, you know, we, we should be clear, you know, I suspect some of the delay or, uh, that we're seeing with respect to, to this prosecution or really all of Trump's other legal uh, difficulties just stem from the fact that if DOJ is going to do this, it's going to have to make absolutely sure that it can actually bring the evidence. So I, I want to say that I, you know, we're cognizant of that. At the same time, it's worth pointing out that the January 6th committee has apparently done a very, very careful job. And I think basically nothing that they've said has credibly been challenged. Um, I think that's one of the really you know, impressive features of it. Um, so you know, we're working on the assumption that basically the January 6th commission has gotten the facts right. But I, you know, I do want to flag the, the point that there obviously are evidentiary issues that are in any trial. So specifically, the two things that we're really focusing on are first, Trump's order uh, that was described by um, Cassidy Hutchinson to remove the effing mags. I'm not sure exactly what Trump said. Presumably, he actually used the full expletive to remove the magnetometers that were separating the crowd from the stage where he was giving the speech. Um, you know, Trump before he went out, he saw that the crowd wasn't quite as big as he wanted. It wasn't quite as close to him as he wanted. Um, he was told that they were armed. Uh, and he said, you know, I don't care. Remove the magnetometers. They're not here to hurt me. Let them march to the Capitol. Right. So again, that's damning both because it shows Trump's state of mind and intent and willingness to accept violence, but it actually is an act. You know, the president said to someone, presumably, though it doesn't appear that his orders were followed, but he gave an order to remove the magnetometers, which would have made the crowd that much more dangerous. Because of course, it would have taken a bunch of armed people and put them even closer to Trump, uh, potentially uh, making them even more willing to heed Trump's orders to go to the Capitol. So that's one thing we focus on. And the second thing we focus on is evidence that Trump numerous times tried to go to the Capitol himself to lead the crowd, something that would have, again, if it had been successful, heightened the danger. So, you know, there's the, there's the, uh, uh, infamous, though disputed, question of Trump's behavior in the limousine uh, after he gave the speech and went to the to back to the White House. Um, right? Cassidy Hutchinson testified that she had been told 
that he lunged at the steering wheel um, and fought the Secret Service officer who refused to Drake take him to the Capitol. There's been some dispute about that, but it does seem like there's other evidence that this story was going around at the time. And then also there's evidence from Secret Service emails that for, I think, the first 45 minutes to an hour after he got back to the White House, Trump kept trying to go to the Capitol to the point that the Secret Service agents were told, you know, put your armor on, get ready. We might be taking the president to the Capitol. That's that, that, that's that's what he wants to do. So those those two categories of acts are not speech. They're in no way protected by the First Amendment. Um, and they show the two things that the Supreme Court cares about in the Brandenburg case and in the doctrine. They show Trump's intent, and they also show actions that were they to have been successful, um, would have materially increased the likelihood of imminent lawlessness and violence. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, let me follow up on one point there, though, which is that of course, the first example you gave was speech, right? So can you just articulate a bit more what the how, how it is that something that was fundamentally speech is sort of converted into conduct for the purposes of your analysis? Sure. And, and I think this is actually a nice illustration of the fact that we have to be careful when we talk about that the First Amendment protects speech. Really, the First Amendment protects speech. It protects its expressive functions, but it does not protect conduct that comes in the form of speech and an order by a superior to a subordinate, right, to remove some physical object is the classic example of something that looks like speech in the sense that it is technically words coming out of someone's mouth, but it is not the sort of speech that is protected by the First Amendment, right? It's not a public address that expresses some political viewpoint. It's me telling you, hey, move that box from point A to point B. That's not the sort of speech that anyone thinks is protected by the First Amendment. Exactly. I, I, some examples are like if a mob boss, an you know, organized crime boss gives an order, you know, says, I order you to, to assassinate, kill someone, that's not speech. Or if a military officer gives an order to deploy a certain weapon or, or commit a, a war crime, orders that come as speech are not speech. And so that what's interesting, Natalie, is that I, Alan and I had the same reaction, really the same moment when this was revealed in Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony in July, that it, we both regarded it, I, I think we use the phrase, a game changer or a crime changer. I think Alan immediately saw the testimony about this order to remove the mags as a sign of Trump's intent. And that I think I saw it as initially as an overt act. And I think together, I think our, our, our reactions kind of came together in both a, a lawfare piece and then this article. Um, and so let me, let me go back and explain. I think there are three aspects of this order that make it an overt act relevant to the, 
points we're, we're talking about here. First and foremost, before Alan was emphasizing its uh, sign of intent, I don't even think you have to get to the order as an intent for a riot to happen. It can, it's still relevant for the Brandenburg test because it reflects, first of all, a, an explicit awareness that the crowd was armed and heavily armed. So that awareness, that the, I, the, the point that Trump was responding to information about the crowd being so heavily armed that they were not able to go through metal detectors shows um, an awareness of the risk or the danger if one goes up and says, fight like hell, it changes the context because of the awareness. And, and, and one aspect of intent can be deliberate indifference or, or, or reckless, a recklessness standard as well. So that knowledge is one thing. Second of all, in order to remove the, the metal detectors, the magnetometers, materially increases the risk of, of violence. I mean, those people attending the, it, it, they were in DC and they could hear from a distance the rally, but Trump was trying to bring them closer to the crowd and be more fired up and march more directly as part of that crowd, which all increased the risk of violence, whether or not he intended to. And I'll, I'll agree with Alan here. I think there is, uh, it is evidence of intent as well, that if, if this is the awareness that you have, it changes the context. It makes the speech even more imminent. Like once you know that this is the language you're using in a crowd of heavily armed people that you have made concretely more armed, including the people who would who would bring heavy arms, that changes the, the, the calculus to be more imminent and more intent as incitement. The one other thing I'd add here, Natalie, is that there's also Trump responded after the January 6th testimony with a letter. And that letter also conceded that he had deployed, uh, he said thousands of troops deployed for peace, safety, and security at the Capitol, this was his response, was, was to say uh, he knew that there was danger here. Now, his, his explanation was that he knew there was danger because the size of the crisis, the size of his supporters was so huge. But if you add that concession to the mix here, it shows a level of awareness of danger that changes the intent and adds to the, uh, to the imminence of violence that he was aware of. Okay, so let's look now at the second statute that um, we were talking about, which is obstruction of an official proceeding. And that's um, for folks at home who are keeping score. That's 18 USC 1512 C2, which I happen to know a lot about because we at Lawfare have been covering it very closely, given that it is one of the statutes that is being very widely used against the January 6th criminal defendants, that is the people who were involved in the riot at the Capitol. So uh, how does what happened at, with Trump's speech, Trump's speech itself, and the sort of surrounding conduct that we've been talking about map onto a 1512 criminal statute? Natalie, I think it's a it's an excellent question, and I think it builds on the same problems. I mean, so what is the the statute itself says that it applies to anyone who corruptly obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding? But if the conduct, if the corrupt obstruction was speech, then we're back to the same problem, right? The difference between these other prosecutions were that the January 6th marchers who rate, who rioted and entered the Capitol, it's clear they had conduct. It's clear that they were interfering in the Capitol itself. And this is the key distinction that Alan and I were concerned with from before the testimony came out is the, the jump from saying here, the rioters themselves who engaged in, in violence and trespassed and went into the Capitol, that those are easy cases because it's conduct. 
going back to Trump's speech, it would be a terrible precedent to say that someone who raises concerns about an election and then uh, says, you know, th this election has been stolen. I mean, there there have been elections stolen. <laughs> there, there has a, there is a history of of some corrupt elections in our in our nation's history. If if someone else said we need to fight like hell to prevent a stolen election and then violence resulted and we prosecuted speakers for obstruction, then we just have a we have a different First Amendment problem, or we have the same First Amendment problem just through a different statute. And the same thing would be true of the insurrection or the seditious conspiracy. The First Amendment is a problem for all of any prosecution based on Trump's speech. But that's actually, and Natalie, if I can just jump to some history here, that helps. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna set it up by just saying <laughs> that insurrection and seditious conspiracy, which are of course the last two statutes um, that you referenced earlier have been quite out of fashion for a long time in American history, but have a very rich history back to the founding and even before that, that um, if I understand correctly, does inform your analysis here with respect to Trump. So can you just talk us through that? Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, there are two different problems here with respect to prosecutions. One is with conspiracy conspiracies of, about let's say violence or conspiracies that might you know be related to an insurrection the one con one concern is that loose talk loose private talk could be criminalized if it's just loose talk and the second concern is that speech if it's political speech that can use hot rhetoric or metaphors there's a concern about criminalizing that speech and and it, the way that our founders addressed both concerns that come up with treason or conspiracies for treason is they built on an English tradition that required witnesses to testify about overt acts. And so what the founders put into the treason clause in Article 3 is they define treason. Treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them, the United States, or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid or comfort, aid and comfort. No person shall be convicted of treason unless on the testimony of two witnesses to the same overt act so, or, or on confession in open court. So this, this English tradition was embedded into the, uh, the Constitution by the framers as a limit on treason prosecutions requiring, and the shift was that the English required two different witnesses. This is the, the two witnesses of the same overt act. And it turns out that each of our statutes that we're talking about are resolved by this solution. And as I mentioned before, the incitement statute requires an overt act and the insurrection and seditious conspiracy uh, statutes have the same language. Some of the same language from the treason clause, like the insurrection statute refers to giving aid or comfort. Um, and the seditious conspiracy statute refers to levying war against them. All of that comes from the treason clause. So the point is that there is a long held tradition back to the founding of requiring overt acts as a principal distinction to prevent the political or partisan or hindsight bias in infected prosecutions for speech by requiring more than speech, right? Requiring the conduct to be additional that furthered that speech itself. So for all of these statutes, it looks like there is built into the criminal statute itself a requirement for an overt act that is sort of its own protection against infringement on First Amendment rights. Is that accurate? 
In some ways, the this was a proto First Amendment. I mean, so they drafted Article Three before the first Congress drafted the First Amendment. So they were already fig- they already recognized the abuse of prosecutions for things that were trumped up treason charges. Sorry, that was really an unintended pun. <laughs> but the but a trumped up treason charge was something that the English had experienced for centuries, and so the English adopted the overt act of requirement as a limit uh, after a series of civil wars and the glorious revolution over a century of, of conflict to limit the abuse of, of political prosecutions. And the founders picked up on that in the in the Philadelphia Convention before they ever drafted a First Amendment itself. And the First Amendment is in some ways sort of a, a more robust protection on this instinct from, from uh, Philadelphia to uh, have Article 3 set this this protection against treason prosecutions for the same first amendment kinds of values. The only the only thing I would I would add to that is you know th- th- there's still I think some uncertainty and you know, this is important because cases like this aren't prosecuted very often there there aren't a lot of incitement cases that are are like this right or insurrection cases or even fraud cases that are like this. So the question of can s- speech be its own overt act is itself interesting, right? My, my view, and, and here Jed and I may differ a little bit, but I think we're both still kind of trying to think through this a little bit, is one can imagine a situation where the same piece of speech can both be expressive, but it can also be sufficiently explicit in its call for violence to be its own overt act, right? So again, I mean, I, I, I think, and Jed, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, if Trump stood up and went on this, you know, did his 75-minute speech and talked about the stolen election and about how bad Democrats are and all this political stuff. And then he said, and now, my armed supporters, please go and burn the Capitol down, right? Do it now. And literally. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Literally said that, right? I don't think there'd be any question that that was punishable under the First Amendment, that was punishable under the Insurrection Act, that's probably punishable maybe even under the treason, uh, the, the, the treason clause, because you'd have two witnesses, you know, to the same overt act. The question is, when the speech is plausibly ambiguous, can it also serve as the overt act? And, and there, what we think the answer is, is no, for both legal and prudential reasons. And that's why it's so, well, helpful for those who want to see Trump brought to justice, very unhelpful for Trump, that there's all this new evidence of just additional stuff that has nothing to do with speech that he did aimed at uh, causing violence and lawlessness at the Capitol. Yeah, I, I agree with Alan on this. I mean, the idea is that, you know, if someone, very explicit orders or very explicit, a very explicit speech to go and shoot a police officer would be the, enough as an overt act in itself or, you know, go, go riot right now. Um, would be itself the overt act. The problem is when you have ambiguous speech, it's harder to pinpoint that as the overt act, which is why the order to remove the mags and trying to go to the Capitol, which the Secret Service identified was, if Trump goes to the Capitol, this would be a coup, this would be an insurrection. That was testimony of the Secret Service. You know, a, a trial would get more of that, but th- that would. Th- I think that's the solution here is to say, when you do have ambiguous speech, other overt acts can clarify the intent and the imminence as part of the other elements of these crimes. So let me just take us straight to the point to wrap us up, which is we've identified this real thicket of concerns, both legal and prudential in terms of protecting the First Amendment and the president in particular and political speech in particular. 
and we've talked through what we know and uh, setting aside the caveat of, as Alan pointed out, the evidence that we have is mostly from the January 6th committee and from reporting, which is, of course, not subject to cross-examination and has not been admitted into evidence as would be required in a criminal trial. What say you? Is there enough here? Would it be wise should DOJ pursue a prosecution against Trump relating to his speech at the ellipse on January 6th? Alan? Yeah, so I mean, this is this is this is the this is the big question, right? And I I don't envy Merrick Garland, um, who has to make you know a decision about what would, if it went forward, be the most consequential prosecution in American history, would cause immense political chaos, would be a profound breach of norms, and you know the only thing worse than prosecuting Trump would be prosecuting him and then having an acquittal. On the other hand, not prosecuting him would send, I think, a really strong message that, frankly, presidents are above the law. Um, especially, you know, even ones that are totally unrepentant, it would cause enormous damage for the rule of law of the half the country that doesn't support Trump. Um, and it would just be a, a remarkable failure of a democratic system to defend itself from someone that, I mean, again, literally got up in front of an armed crowd, told them a bunch of lies about the election, told them to go to the Capitol and fight. You know, I, I think you have, unfortunately, right, it's hard to it's hard to predict the future. But I think what, you know, whatever... Jed and I might separately think about you know, the, the prudential issues. I think the point that we, you know, we're trying to drive home is that there there is no First Amendment legal bar, and and our main goal is to try to dispel the kind of cloud that, again, to be clear, we both thought was hanging over a prosecution of Trump. We don't think that cloud is there anymore. Again, there's lots of other questions left, but that I think should not be the determining factor for for DOJ. And just to add, the other thing that was happening over the summer that's still unfolding is the investigation about uh, classified documents taken from D.C. to Mar-a-Lago. And that has become, I compare this to the Al Capone uh, prosecution, where he was convicted of tax fraud, though everyone else knew there were much worse things than tax fraud that he did. And so sometimes we you, you, you have a, what's called a paper crime or a paper prosecution. In this case, a paper prosecution is that the evidence is clear enough on paper and you don't need to rely on witnesses. In the case of the Mar-a-Lago classified documents, it's literally a paper prosecution. It's about the mismanagement of pieces of paper. That crime may be clear, but Natalie, I think this now we're in a dynamic where there are there are so many crimes that have gotten clarified over the summer that the the fact of the classified documents, that might be the straw that breaks the camel's back. That, that might be the breakthrough crime that's clear enough that you get an indictment on that case. And that makes it easier as a prudential matter. Once you indict Trump, once, once the, the Garland DOJ might indict, indict Trump for the classified documents, it lowers the bar to, to for another indictment. I think the question is, you know, even without the Mar-a-Lago case, I think at this point, it was right for people to be skeptical of any prosecution for the speech before the January 6th committee revealed Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, et cetera. Now, I think Alan is right that there are bad outcomes that could come from a prosecution. But compared to the outcomes of having all of this information now out in the public domain, any prosecution now is, is already validated by what's in the public domain. It is not just prosecuting for the speech itself. So the damage, you have to compare the risk of prosecution and, and, a, and, and perhaps a hung jury versus the longer term damage of not prosecuting at all. 
because now a prosecutor has to say any decision to not prosecute is despite all of this evidence in or all of this information now out in the public domain. And the message it sends is that presidents are above the law and that our prosecutors are intimidated by the kinds of people. It just it just confirms it, it ratifies that when the January 6th rioters raided the Capitol, they also could have metaphorically raided DOJ and they tore apart the DOJ metaphorically if prosecutors are now too intimidated by those riots to enforce the law. We're going to leave it there. Judge Sugarman, Alan Rosenstein, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.